You're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. Yes, welcome to the Mining and Energy podcast. I'm Tim Brunero. G'day. Well, members at Central Queensland Mines, Goonyala Riverside, Peak Downs, Siraji and Blackwater are beginning negotiations for a new BMA Central Agreement, commonly called the BHP Agreement. It's an important agreement for the broader industry and has a 40-plus year history. Queensland District President Steve Smythe. The BHP Central Agreement is by far the most important agreement in the coal sector in Queensland. It's been uh, the development of decades of fight, decades of turmoil and decades of, of members and their families in the communities and covered by this agreement, the Barham Basin standing up and fighting for what's right. It has delivered benefits, it continues to deliver protection and it continues to deliver for our members and their families in the communities. We need to build on what was laid out for us as a union by the rank and file members and the leaders prior, well before we, we've been able to benefit from what's been, what's been done. The history in itself can never be forgotten and won't be forgotten and it's about the union ensuring that we continue to support those mining communities, Blackwater, Dysart and Moorumbah where our members live and it's important that we continue to provide further benefits and also the social outcomes that come by having such a comprehensive agreement in place. It provides traineeships, apprenticeships, it provides services into those communities. So it's more than just about an agreement. It's about us ensuring that we maintain and improve and not go backwards. We owe it to those members in the past and we owe it to our future generations to make sure that we get it right and we do whatever's required to make sure that no one is left behind and no one is worse off. Well, today you'll hear the history of this agreement from the mid-70s all the way to the present day. In fact, it's such a long story, we're going to split it into two parts. So if you're listening to this, remember you have a second half to look forward to very soon. Let's get started. So the mines covered by the BMA Central Agreement are Gunyala Riverside, Peak Downs, Siraji, Blackwater, and mines on care and maintenance, Norwich Park, Gregory, Crinham. The employer at these mines is currently BHP and Japanese company Mitsubishi, hence BMA, the BHP Billiton Mitsubishi Alliance. However, it's BHP which runs the show. But it wasn't always so. Utah ran the mine in the 70s and early 80s. Looking back at that time, former lodge president at Gunyala Riverside for 23 years, Shane Kinane says Utah management worked hard to make Utah a good corporate citizen, especially in Moorumbah. Well, Tim, in the early days, uh, we used to work like three rotating shifts, Monday to Friday. On the weekends, the mine had closed down, except for a skeleton crew sort of thing. On them days, we used to... The management at the time, well, mainly uh, Ian McEwen and Kelly Davis, they were the two uh, executives at the mine at the time. They were very community-minded as well. And they used to let us use the machines uh, on the weekends, bring them into town. We built a race course, uh, speedway, country of western grounds, rodeo grounds. We had everything. Then they uh, also put in a bit of money and we built squash courts, AFL fields, tennis courts. Everyone loved sport in the, uh, in the town in the early days. They, uh, they built us a big championship-sized boxing ring. We still use that, that ring today. It's still being used today. It was a great place to live. And uh, that was when Utah used to sort of support everyone. If you had a, uh, 
anything at all that you wanted to do, they'd listen to you and they'd help you sort of achieve whatever you wanted. It was really a great place to be. Ask members about this period and they'll inevitably come back to the big six-week strike in 1978 where they stopped the introduction of seven-day rosters, got a $100 pay bump to bring them into line with New South Wales miners and won themselves a bonus system. But soon, another fight was brewing, this time with the federal government. In 1980, the then federal treasurer, John Howard, tried to tax subsidised accommodation. Because mining communities were in remote areas, miners had fought to have accommodation provided. In the early 60s, many were living in tents and shacks. Mining companies were forced to build housing in a landmark decision in the mid-60s when local woman Judith Martin appeared before the arbitration court in Brisbane and showed the judge the filthy water she and her family were provided to drink. Very lightly, I pulled out this bottle of water and I sat it on the in front of me and I said, here, Mr Gallagher, Judge Gallagher, I said, there's what the water that we're drinking out there at Mara at the moment. And he turned around and said to me, well, I'll put it this way, if I was in that position, he said, I'd make sure I had a big bottle of whiskey next to it. So in 1980, most miners paid a heavily subsidised $5 a week in rent. But now the federal government wanted to raise the rent to $25 and then tax the difference, $20, as a taxable benefit. It was, in effect, a pay cut and an attempt to get a slice of something miners had worked hard to win. Members downed tools in protest, which each week cost local mining companies $5 million in profits, the Queensland government $3 million in royalties and the federal government $9 million in excise and export duties. All over a measly extra $20,000 a week in tax the federal government wanted to take from the miners of central Queensland. Former Peak Downs Lodge president Marty Crane remembers the dispute well. It dragged on for weeks. We had that much support from teachers, police, because it was going to affect everyone. Everyone who had subsidised rent. And the police came out and told us, and, and the, the teachers and everyone, because they couldn't go on strike. And they supported us 100%. Eh? That was just unbelievable, financially uh, and morally. So, uh, yeah, so it was... It was going to affect everyone. Marty Crane says they beat Howard on the tax question, but did agree to a small increase in rent paid to the company. I asked him if it was a win. Yeah, it was, because it, it went from $5 to $8. So that's, um, in my opinion, a fair sort of win. Yeah, because we'd spent a bit of time on the grass. For the sake of us getting back to work, the $8, the extra couple of dollars was a compromise. So, yeah, we did it. This wouldn't be the last time forces outside the industry interfered with miners' rights in central Queensland. We'll see more examples as we explore the history of the BMA agreement through this episode. All right, where are we up to? That's right, the early 80s. In the early 80s, health cover was a hard-fought issue. Remember, this was before 1983 when the Hawke government brought in Medicare and free health care for all Australians. So private health cover was critically important. Speaking of 1983, in that year there was a downturn in the industry and Utah sold its interest to BHP. BHP had a very different mentality. Queensland District Vice President Steve Pearce remembers. When I started at Saraji, 
The mine was owned obviously by Utah Development Company, which was an American company. But by and large, the management at the site were all Australian management. They were people who had either come off the floor as maintenance employees or come out of a production role and were promoted because of their ability to be able to um, not only deal with people but their knowledge of the job and be able to, to get the job done, get it done properly and safely. What we saw with a, a takeover, the buyout by BHP, they came through and they systematically removed some people from senior management and installed BHP management in there, people who weren't from coal, had no experience in coal, and a lot of those people, unlike the, the, the Utah management, didn't live in the community. From there, it filtered through where they started replacing the supervisors, superintendents and senior management at the site with people who were university graduates, engineers, people out of iron ore, people out of steel mills, people that, um, you know, the day before they didn't know what a coal mine looked like. Along with the personnel change, which meant you had managers telling workers with 20 or 30 years of experience how to do their job, BHP brought a more aggressive attitude. While there were industrial disputes during the Utah years, Utah had a, had a position of sitting down and trying to negotiate and trying to sort the issues out. Whereas BHP brought this very dictatorial style with them that was, you do it our way or we'll belt you. They tended to come along and, and use disciplinary action and punitive action as a way of enforcing their way of management. And it wasn't, it wasn't only restricted to the wages employees on the ground. If there were um, people within management who raised concerns about the way that they were operating, the way that they were dealing with people, the way that they were treating people, those people quite often got transferred to a do-nothing, be-nothing job, which we referred to as the departure lounge. Steve says in 1988, things changed forever, thanks to the structural efficiency decision handed down by David Duncan, the chairman of the Coal Industry Tribunal. Again, outside forces imposed changes on central Queensland miners. What that did was forced all coal mine workers onto a um, what was the, called the dragline roster which was still eight-hour shifts, but it was seven days in a row. And you'd do seven-day shifts, you'd have two days off. You'd do seven night shifts, have four days off. You'd do seven afternoon shifts, and then you'd have one day off, and obviously then roll back into the day shifts. That really started the destruction and the decay of the, uh, the mining communities, because the, uh, the people who were training the children at sport were looking after different social activities in town. Those workers were now not available on a weekly basis to be able to provide the guidance and support to those children. Senior sport obviously disappeared because weekends people were rostered on. So sporting teams basically had to have two teams to try and field a team. A lot of partners, because of the extended roster and, and people 
being away on the weekends, their partner having to work on the weekends, um, actually relocated to the coast or to other areas where they had family support. Their partner would live in the camp and then go home on the weekend. So it, it started to decline in the coal communities. The shift structures for the seven-day roster in terms of days on shift and days off were different at different mines, making it even harder for communities to continue to function as they had. Former Lodge President at Goonyala Riverside for 23 years, Shane Kinane, remembers the change to a seven-day roster. When we used to work the three rotating shifts, we used to do 80 hours a day, Monday to Friday. When BHP sort of took over, it was more or less they wanted all work and no play. So that everything went on the seven-day roster, which sort of put a big dent in the sport. Everyone was still sports-wise, but it put a big dent in it. And uh, a lot of people couldn't go away on weekends because we were working. Also happening in 1988 were the Hawke-Keating government's changes to industrial relations. But it took 10 years for the changes to reach the Queensland mining industry. So let's skip forward 10 years to 1998 in a second. But first, Steve Pearce explains the 1988 changes. In 88, the Hawke-Keating government, obviously with the ACTU and peak unions, introduced the Prices and Income Accord, or the Wages Accord as it was called, which heralded in enterprise bargaining, which was a move away from employment being governed by, by an award system that was centrally negotiated by the ACTU and the government of the day to an enterprise type arrangement where each enterprise would have the uh, ability to negotiate an agreement um, that best suited their enterprise, um, both with management and the employees, but was still underpinned um, predominantly by an award arrangement. So in 1998, when these changes came to the Queensland mining industry, Steve explains what happened. Each mine, in keeping with what was the theme of the process at the time, did individual agreements. A number of those agreements were quite successful. They had good wage increases in them. You know, for a first round, first try agreement, they covered off things like, um, at that time, the rental in the mining communities had gone up from the $5 a week to around $50 a week because it, it attracted a GST component. A number of agreements had provisions in them that said that if that was ever reduced or removed, that the rental would, would move backwards. And while uh, nobody ever expected it to occur, through the life of those agreements, that GST was actually removed. So there was, there was actually benefit for the mine workers because they, um, they again had a lower rent of, rate of rent to pay um, because of provisions that they had the forethought to put into documents. Those documents also had the terms and conditions that contractors would have to um, be paid and uh, be provided for when they came onto a mine site so that if a contractor came on a mine site, they were paid the same as the mine workers at the site, the permanent mine workers. So for, for a first pass agreement, um, a lot of them were very good. Also in 1998, after years of pushing and after putting the foreman at the mines onto 12-hour shifts, eventually, by a slim majority, mine by mine, the company managed to convince miners to accept 12-hour shifts. Yeah, through 97, 98, there was an introduction of 12-hour roster shifts in the industry. It originally started at North Gunyala, which was an underground mine 
in central Queensland and they based their workers out of out of Mackay. Once 12-hour shifts started in the industry, other, other mines wanted to move to 12-hour shifts. The roster lengths were from 6 a.m. in the morning till 6 p.m. at night and 6 p.m. at night till 6 a.m. at the morning. Some of those rosters were four on, four off. Uh, some were seven on, seven off, and, and some were um, different configurations in between that. That was the death knell for mining communities. The husband would be working from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. on day shift, not see his children at all. A lot of workers had more fatigue, would come home six o'clock, basically have a shower, have a feed, and go to bed. When they were on night shift, They'd work from 6 p.m. at night till 6 a.m. in the morning. None of those people were available to be able to train the, the children in the town for sports, um, for guides, for scouts. A lot of families, quite a significant number of families, made the decision to move out of the community. There was already pressure on the schooling systems because there'd been children lost in, in 10 years earlier in 88 going to the coast with the uh, drag line, the, the seven on seven off roster. With 12 hour shifts, that basically gutted the, um, the schooling systems in the, in the mining communities. And a lot of teachers were either withdrawn from the schools or not provided to the schools in the next year, which meant a lot of subjects were no longer available for, for children living in those remote mining communities, which again put further pressure on families where they either made a decision that the wife and the children would relocate to a, a coastal area where the children would have access to the subjects that they needed for, for the career that they wanted to move to, or the parents were forced to put children into boarding schools. Mining communities became ghost towns. You know, shopping centres closed down, West Fund that provided health services closed down and moved out of the smaller, smaller mining communities and went to larger mining communities or relocated to the coast. Not only did people have no longer have a community and a community spirit there, uh, the communities were struggling to survive because the normal facilities that you would see in a healthy town were disappearing. Shane Kinane remembers the introduction of the 12-hour shift. He says many marriages suffered due to the change. Then after a while, they brought in the 12-hour shift. And uh, at that time, we used to do uh, two night shifts, two days, four on, four off, they used to call it. Then they decided they wanted them interlocked. So they started doing a uh, extra half hour, which meant you're away from home for about 13 and a half hours, which uh, was a big strain on any family, you know, when you're away from home for that long. Shane Kinane. Okay, so that's the end of our first of two episodes looking at the history of the BMA Central Agreement. We're doing the 40 plus year history of this agreement, which is very important for the broader Queensland mining industry in two parts. You've just heard the first half, which covers from the 1970s to the year 2000. In our next episode, we'll look at the 20 years between the year 2000 and 2021. Tune into episode two, where we start with the 2001 negotiations of the agreement, which prove a turning point for this key agreement for central Queensland miners. This agreement has gone back into negotiations this year, which is obviously why we're looking back at its history. Incidentally, if you do like what we do on the podcast, please tell your friends, text or email them a link. We're perfect for long car drives, I'm told. So show a friend how they can find us and put us on speaker and listen to us right from their phone. Some people are technologically challenged, 
so help them out. Please remember our best form of marketing is your gob. Thanks for listening. Part two of the history of the BMA Central Agreement coming out soon.